Cheryl um, tricked me a few years back. I was raised on rich milk. You know the stuff I'm talking about? And you got to drink it fast because it starts to just get thick and curdly if you don't, you know? It's, I, and I still, to, to this day, man, give me some whole milk to pour on my cereal. <laughs> and it, it literally coats every piece. <laughs> That's my kind of milk. And so we would drink that. We got married, and she said, you know, we've we got to start being a little more healthy. And I'm like, yeah, but and literally, I would buy the rich milk, just mainly for my cereal, but I, I just love the thick, creamy stuff. And so she said, well, let's, let's go to 2%. All right, all right, go to 2%. And I, and I adjusted to 2%. It wasn't too bad until the day she brought home 1%. <laughs> but there was nothing else to put on my cereal in it, like I'm going to eat it dry. So we go to the 1%. And after about a year of 1%, suddenly this really strange-looking liquid began to appear in our refrigerator. It was blue. It was. It was like the stuff that Luke Skywalker drank in Star Wars. You know, in the first Star Wars report, the blue milk. It was blue. I'm like, what's wrong with the milk? Wait a minute. No fat? There's no fat. That's not right. And she got me into this process of... I, got, I went from rich to... Bleh. But you know what? That's all we drink now, and I'm totally used to it. I don't even think twice about it. Until I go to a friend's house, and they've got richer, you know, 2% milk. It's like, oh, this is really good. You know? Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, Jeff D'Angelo was trying to get me to go in the opposite direction. He ordered me one time a grande vanilla breve latte, which is made with half and half. I'm hooked. I can't get off them. They're the best thing in the world. So I've got the non-fat milk at home with Cheryl, but when I go to Starbucks, it's good stuff. How lukewarm is your approach to Jesus? Let's get personal just for a minute. Think about how you approach Jesus. Do you have the rich, the rich, creamy, tasty, wonderful, you cannot wait to pour Jesus on your cereal? I'm sorry, am I taking this a little too far? Is your relationship with Jesus just wonderful and passionate? Or is it like non-fat milk? That works, you know. I'm still drinking the milk. Still go. Still connected at some level. Let me put it to you this way. If the Bridge Christian Fellowship or whatever church you attend was made up of 200 U's, what would the church be like? If there were 200 versions of you, exactly like... You are. What would the church be like? Everybody's like you. Now, I've thought about that in my situation. That'd be really scary. But for yourself, what if everybody in your church fellowship approached Jesus the exact same way you do? Would that church survive? Would that church be just blowing, blowing off the charts of evangelism, reaching people, drawing people in? If everyone was like you, what if everyone was in, as engaged in other people's lives as you are? What if everyone gave financially what you give? Oh, no, don't go to the money place, Rick. Hey, I, that's between you and God. So let me remind you, no one in leadership of the bridge knows what anybody gives. It's not our business. That's God's business. But I'll tell you what is my business as a pastor is spiritually to say, what if everybody gave to the bridge like you give to the bridge? Could this church survive? I don't know what you give. What if everybody served exactly like you? Would the church look like Philadelphia? Or would the church look like Laodicea? Jesus says, I don't want you riding in the middle. I want you hot. Or cold. I'll deal with cold. 
Coal can be melted. You put a little fire under cold, and what does it do? It, it waters down pretty fast. It breaks down into tears. It gets to a point of brokenness. But if you sit lukewarm in the muck of the middle, not going either hot, not going cold, Jesus says, I have no use for you in my kingdom. And he literally says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Like the first time I had a glass of non-fat milk. <laughs> what is this? And that's what Jesus will do. Matthew 13, 12. He says, For whoever has to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away. Lukewarm lethargy. The power of the people. These are all problems for Laodicea. Problem number three is their, mere, uh, their miserable materialism. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked miserable materialism everything this church thought mattered everything that seemed important to the rich well-dressed visionary church of the Laodiceans was a big fat blind lie and it's a lie in the church today wealthy churches churches of the name it claim it mentality. God wants you to be rich. And if you're not rich, you don't have enough faith. That's a lie, gang. I have seen people of tremendous faith who had nothing. And that's where God wanted them to be. This is a church whose very existence is like crocodiles in Egypt. What do you mean? They're living in denial. <laughs> They're living in denial of literally their wretched sin, their need for repentance, denial of the saving power of the cross of Jesus Christ, denial of the fact that God wants you emotional about your faith. Not just the guy who's. T- I know I get excited up here, but gang, this is what God wants of us. We should be excited about Jesus. Is it hard for you to get excited about the Lord? When you're talking with friends, do you find your blood pressure rising and your, you know, your enthusiasm, you're getting louder and louder and they're going, hey, settle down, settle down. Or are they yawning? <laughs> well, your Jesus sounds great. <laughs> Love to get some of that myself. This is a church of denial of spiritual significance for their material misery. What do you mean? Flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has made, or Peter has made a profound, profound confession. Mark chapter 8, Peter, in front of the other apostles, Jesus has just asked him that wonderful question, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? And Peter has just wonderfully, he's marvelously in verse 31, or just before that, he says, You are the Christ. You're the one, Jesus. You're it. You're the main man. You're the Savior. You're the one we've been waiting for. And in verse 31, the story continues. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Stop there. Understand this. The crucifixion should not have been a surprise to the apostles. Mark makes it clear. Jesus told them exactly what would happen. Exactly. He didn't mince words. This was not like teaching in parables where they had to kind of guess and figure out. He said the Son of Man, who they knew was Him, 
must suffer and be rejected and be killed. He told them, I'm going to die, guys. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead again. They had seen him raise people from the dead. But they missed it. They shouldn't have, but they did. Verse 32, And he was stating the matter plainly, Mark says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Jesus, not this. No, this can't happen. No, we won't let this happen. Stop talking. This is crazy talk. And turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. That's scary. <laughs> call one of your closest friends Satan. Get behind me, Satan. This is the same man who moments before had just declared, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the, the object of our faith. You are it. You're our Savior. And now Jesus turns right around and says, And you are acting like Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not, listen to this, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said this to them. He said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If we sit back into material well-being gain, our consumption will consume us. And that was a problem with Laodicea. So Jesus now going back to Revelation gives practical recommendation. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 18. Revelation 3, he says, I advise you, I advise you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Now fire is going to do two things. It's either going to continue to heat up those who are already hot or it's going to melt down those who are cold, which again is why Jesus says, I don't want you in the middle. Fire in the middle is just kind of nice. It's for, you know, cooking hot dogs and marshmallows over and that's about it. He says, I want you to buy gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Three recommendations of Jesus. Practical recommendations. Number one, run into the fire. Run into the fire. Run into the fire. Now you may say, hang on Rick, you don't understand. If I start to act all passionately about Jesus, I could lose my job. That's right. If I start to live out this relationship with Jesus, I could lose my standing in the community. Absolutely. Well, if I start to talk to my friends about Jesus in this way, I might be a lonely person really fast. Well, you'll have the rest of us here. But yeah, you may lose friends. You may lose connections. You may lose jobs. You may suffer. You may be persecuted if you are running into the fire. If you're buying gold refined by fire. But gang, listen to me. If you don't take your faith into the fire, ultimately it will fail you. Because a faith that is untested is not a purified faith. What do you mean? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while now, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In John's day, and even up to present day, smelters, 
Smelters were guys who would purify fine metals, gold, silver, other types of metals. And a smelter of gold, the point at which they knew that the gold was purified in the fire long enough, that all the impurities were completely out of it, was when they could look into that liquefied gold and see their face. The reflection of their face. And that's what Jesus wants for us to look into, for him to look into the gold which is us, that has gone through fire and see in us the reflection of his face. To see Jesus in us. Well, how do I practically get into the fire? Engage. Engage in the daily personal work of God. How do I do that? There's a simple little question I ask all the time. Lord, is this you? Lord, is this you? Is this what you want us to do today? Lord, is this the direction you want us to go? Lord, is this where you want me to be? Lord, is this you? It's so simple just to keep asking this over and over. You get to work and something, someone comes up and, and, and you can tell. You can tell that, they, that they've wiped tears out of their face. Something's going wrong. And they go back to their seat on the other side of the cubicle there. And you're sitting there going, well, I really should talk to them. But I've got so much to get done today. Lord, is this you? Is this you? Are you calling me to go deal with this? Someone comes up to you and, and wonders what you're doing for Thanksgiving and boy, you're just having your family and no one else. And you go, Lord, is this you? Or are you telling me I need to offer an invitation here? Someone else? Lord, is this you? Practical, everyday stuff. Gang, it's the rejection of your personal rights for God's sake. Run into the fire. Secondly, robe yourself in white garments. What are the white garments? Literally, these are the garments of grace. You need to wear grace. You want to be on fire for the Lord? Hot for God? You need to wear the garments of grace. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What is it that a bride wears? White. White garments. Wrap yourself in white. By the way, something else, just a little side note about Laodicea. It was known for a special process in which they could take sheep's wool and work it down and produce these beautiful, really slick, wealthy, shiny, black garments. And Jesus would say, you don't need the shiny black garments of Laodicea. The slick garments that you can wear out into the world. You know, that kind of members-only look. I know that dates me a little bit. I had a members-only jacket and it was cool. I want you to know that. The garments that Jesus offers, the garments he offers are not shiny, they're not flashy, they're not the black clothes of the Laodicean jet set, they are the white clothes of salvation of a pure bride, purified by the Son himself. Revelation 19 verse 8, speaking of the bride, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And linen, you may recall, we've just passed by here a few months back, Exodus 28 tells us, linen Linen is the dress of a priest of God, and you are called to be a royal priesthood. So, robe yourself with the white garments, run into the fire, and number three, number three, focus on the great ophthalmologist. The great ophthalmologist. Jesus says, you need eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. A Laodicean would read that and go, oh yeah, eye salve. Hey, we're famous for that. Yeah, we make that stuff. We mix it all, it's this kind of ointment they would get from plants, and then they take kind of this red clay and mix it all together and sell it all over the world. This special way out of seeing eye salve. How does Jesus work that out? Why do I need eye salve? How does Jesus' eye salve work? 
John chapter 9 tells an interesting story. I won't read it to you, but I'll just mention it. A blind man comes to Jesus, wants to be healed. So Jesus says, okay, great, I'll heal you. Now you know he healed different people in different ways. There was a centurion servant that Jesus said, hey, because of your faith, he's healed. Didn't even see him, didn't touch him, had no contact with him whatsoever. Jesus could heal without any contact. There are other times where blind men were just simply healed by the touch of Jesus. But in this case, Jesus spits on the ground. He makes a little mud and wipes it in the guy's eyes. You know, here's mud in your eye. <laughs> and then he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam means scent. Go wash in the pool of scent. Interesting methodology. Now, I had LASIK surgery a year ago now. If you remember, I used to wear glasses all the time, and I don't now. And it's great, and I, I, it's nice not having those things hanging on my face. But the moment I came out of the LASIK surgery, they gave me this, this ointment, and they put it on my eyes. And we literally had a, a hotel right down there. It was down in, in Seattle, because I had to go right back the next morning for a follow-up. And I went to the hotel. They gave me the ointment, and they gave me drugs. And they said, you go sleep it off. For the first eight to nine hours after the surgery are the most uncomfortable. They would be the most painful. But if you can sleep, you'll miss most of that. And so I did. I slept it off and I woke up in the bed and for the first time I, I kind of opened my eyes and, and the first thing I saw was a little sprinkler on the ceiling. And I could see the manufacturer's name. I was like, yes! I can see! <laughs> I've been healed! It was wonderful. But my eyes were irritated. They were dry and scratchy. Any of you have had that LASIK surgery, you know what I mean. They, they just get dry and you cannot wait to get the eye drops back in them. And the moment you do, it's like, oh, this is great. How did it feel for this blind man to have spittle mud wiped into his eyes? Now, I'm just talking physically, practically. Do you think it felt good? As he's walking, being led to the pool of Siloam, and he's got this crusty, dirty, muddy stuff in his eyes. It's irritating. It would cause dryness. It would have been uncomfortable, possibly even painful. And that's exactly how Jesus heals. That's how Jesus gives us vision. See, before vision, there's often, with the Lord, irritation. Often He does something that makes you uncomfortable in your life. Sometimes He does something in your life that doesn't make you uncomfortable. It makes you downright painful. He allows this to enter into your life or causes it actually to happen does it irritate you when a particular sin that you're struggling on is touched on in the Bible do you ever find yourself in, you know, in, in Bible study Sunday night here or Wednesday night or Sunday morning and something that's said or a verse is read you just kind of go oh, that didn't feel very good Gang, this is part of the process of how God gives you eyesight again accepting our sin nature recognizing sometimes painfully dealing with the irritations of my lack of faith realizing my blind spots these bring me to the point of needing Jesus perfect I self I love this Luke 6:41. one of the really funny parables of Jesus when he says why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye it's comical to even consider this. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. But Laodiceans, gang, Laodiceans don't deal with their own eye problems. They just export their muddy ointment to other places and other people. 
They just say, you're the one that needs the mud. You're the one with the problem. You're the one with the sin. You need to clean up your life. But over here, I'm just fine. I have my comfortable seat in church, and I rest the log in my eye right on the pew in front of me. It's great. (laughs) Focusing on Jesus, gang, will always induce repentance. Well, number five, Jesus gives us a surprising affirmation. Hang with me. We're almost done here. A surprising affirmation, verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. A surprising positive affirmation. After all this, after hammering away at lukewarm Laodicea and saying, you guys are not rich, you're, you're filthy poor. You're in the opposite direction. You're not well clothed. You're naked. You're blind. you got nothing. You think you've got it all together. You don't. But then Jesus says these wonderful words, those whom I love, I discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove. In other words, Jesus loves Laodicea. Wow. I'll tell you what, it's real easy to rant and rave about the ills of the church. It's real easy to do. It's real easy to point them out and to sit here all comfy in this barn and go, but we got it together here. You know? I mean, we're, we're, we're with it here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It's the other churches that have the problem. It's so easy to do that. Jesus loves Laodicea. He would say, if you feel bruised by my words, if you fear being spit out, if this troubles or irritates you, great. It proves to you something, that I love you. If it's hard to sit there and listen to these words, good. It shows you something. I love, I love, I love you. Those whom I love, I discipline. Now, interesting, in verse 20, Jesus is standing outside the door. He's out in the cold and he's knocking on the door. And the door is the door of the human heart, but it may not be the heart that you think it is. Let me tell you a quick story. There was a cleaning lady who worked in a large city. And as she would bust in and out each day to do her cleaning job, she discovered a church in the neighborhood of fine homes in which she worked. It's a great church. It's a beautiful church. And it it was a seeker-friendly church. I mean, it really was attractive on the outside. It didn't look inhibiting or difficult. So she, she bust in, and, and she lived in a poorer section of the city. But this affluent uptown church just really drew her. And the music, oh, the music on Sunday when she would walk by was absolutely heavenly. And the pastor was articulate and motivational. And the overall experience was just always encouraging. So one morning, after the grand conclusion of a glorious service, this, this lady timidly approached the pastor. And she said, Pastor, I, I've been visiting for a while and I'd, I'd like to join this church. The pastor noted immediately that she was rather unkempt and not their type and likely not to give much financially to the church, so he handed her a book and he said, uh, First you need to read and study this book on the history and teachings of our denomination. And the woman's face fell as she said, Well, Pastor, I'm, I'm not educated. I actually can't read very well at all. The pastor shrugged and said, well, I'm sorry, but our constitution states that to be a member of this church, you have to read this book. So her great desire was to join this church. So the woman went out and enrolled in night school to learn how to read well enough to read this book. A year later, she came back to the pastor and said, Pastor, can I have that book now? I can read. I can read. In two weeks, she devoured the book cover to cover, and she returned to the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm done. I've read the book. Now can I join the church? And the pastor said, Well, 
Yes, but only after you come to classes every other Tuesday morning for the next six months that detail our beliefs and our traditions. And her face fell again. Her heart sank, for she worked at cleaning homes every Tuesday and Thursday morning. But somehow she worked it out. She went to the people whose homes she cleaned and begged and worked it out with them to work Saturdays and Wednesdays instead so that she could come to the classes. Six months later, she came back to the pastor, triumphantly having completed the membership course, having read the book. And she said, Pastor, I've done all this, the book, the classes. Can I now join the church? And he said, well, yes, you can. But you see, our members are required to give a minimum of $10,000 a year in contributions. And the woman barely made this much in a year. And so crestfallen, she walked out of the church, down the street a few blocks, and sat on the curb at her bus stop and wept. And wept. Suddenly, a man appeared next to her, sat down. It was Jesus. And he said, my daughter, what's the matter? She said, oh Jesus, I've been trying to join this church for almost three years and I just can't get in. And Jesus said, don't feel bad, I've been trying to get into that church for 20 years. <laughs> Dang, we use this verse, Revelation 3.20, as a verse of evangelism and it's not. It's not. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The door that Jesus is standing at is the door of the church. Not the door of a lost sinner's heart. Now, yes, Jesus knocks on the door of a sinner's heart. We know that from other verses. We know that the Spirit is searching the hearts and minds of those who would believe in Him. We understand that. But in the context of this letter, Jesus is standing outside in the cold, knocking and knocking on the door, and the door is the church. And the question is, will the church open the door? If this, letter, if this was the context of the letter to Philadelphia then it would be the heart. It would be the heart of evangelism, the heart of a lost person who is being knocked on. But it's not Philadelphia. It's Laodicea. It's the church of the people, by the people, for the people. And Jesus is knocking on the door of this church. He's knocking on the door of Laodicea historically. He's knocking on the door of Laodicea corporately and prophetically and personally. When I was a kid, I was a 30-minute latchkey kid. What I mean by that is we got home about 30 minutes before my mom every day. She was a school teacher. So my brother Ron and I would get home 30 minutes ahead of her, and we had our little keys, and we kept our little key ring, and we could let ourselves into the house. And I always played these games. I always locked Ron out of the house. I don't think he's ever forgiven me, really, for that. I'd get home early, you know, and, and I'd have the key, and, and we'd be walking up the drive, and I'd take off running. We'd be like, no, stop! And I'd get in the door, slam the door, shut ah, ha, 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 you know, he stuck. I'd lock him out, and it was so fun. It really was. But this is the tendency of the end times church gang to lock Jesus out. To keep the door shut. There's that famous painting. Maybe you've seen it. The, the painting of Jesus standing at the door. It's kind of a door. There's a garden around and Jesus is standing there and, he, and he's got the fist up and he's knocking on the door. When this painting was first made, Art critics had a problem with it. They, they told the, the artist, they said, you've got a problem, you don't have a handle on the door. And he said, oh, no, there's a handle on the door, it's on the inside, where it belongs. Jesus stands in the door and knocks, but he is not going to force his way in. These are the days of the seeker-sensitive church. The church that is designed around the needs of the seeker, a church for the people. A church of the people. A church by the people. Well, what's wrong with that, Rick? Isn't that evangel? Isn't that Philadelphia? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? I think that we've missed it when we say we need to be focused on the seeker. When the seeker is a human being. The seeker, gang, that we need to be focused on is Jesus. 
He's the seeker. He's the one seeking hearts and minds. He's the one that we need to be concerned about pleasing and honoring and lifting up. We need to be sensitive to Him. Luke 19.10 The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Revelation 5.6 I saw between the throne, and we'll see this in about three weeks, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns. Those seven horns speak of his authority. And having seven eyes, which speak of Jesus' vision, which are the seven spirits of God. That is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But the verse ends like this. The seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, sent out into all the earth. Sent out. The seeker is Jesus. And the church of today to avoid Laodicea, to be passionately in love with the Lord, needs to be a church that is concerned, that is seeker-sensitive, Jesus-sensitive. Well, finally, Jesus gives an eternal motivation, and we're done. Verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He says, if you hear my voice, which is why after every letter he says... He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear my voice, I'm out here. He's not just knocking, he's calling. Hello? Anybody home? I'm out here. Come on, open up. I'd love to come in. And what happens when the church opens the door? We get to dine with Jesus in intimacy. We've talked about this recently. Intimacy in the Middle East, yeah, we've talked about this, how it is often expressed through a meal. Not just hanging out like, like we do casually in America, but a Middle Eastern meal is a sharing of yourself. And Jesus says, I'll come in, we'll, we'll eat together. We'll share food together. We'll have intimate dining together. And then after dinner we can sit back together. Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Speaking of great security... My dad, when I was a kid, had this huge black leather Lazy Boy chair. Probably wasn't all that big, but when I was little, it was huge. And there was just enough room for me to slide in next to him by that big puffy armrest, and my dad there with his newspaper, and I would just sit there. One of the most secure places in my entire life was sitting there with dad in his big chair. And Jesus says, let's, let's eat together. And after we eat, let's have a seat in the chair. You sit with me on my throne. You sit with me in that kind of great security. But don't miss this. Sitting with Jesus on the throne doesn't just indicate security. It also indicates authority. You sit on the throne with me, he says, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. What happened when Jesus overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne? All authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. And so now Jesus says, and you can sit with me in the same way. I'm going to give you authority. Authority. What are you talking about, Jesus? Revelation 1.6, He made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever and amen. On and on in the book of Revelation, several times we're told that we will rule and reign with Him in that time of the millennium. Great authority. Now, in just six weeks, we have covered the entire 2,000 years of church history. This book is amazing. It's amazing. Two chapters in the Bible covering 2,000 years. And the Lord Jesus brings us to right now and lands us into the now of the church age. We finish this letter, we close it up, and here we sit with the Lord, having looked back on 2,000 years, and we are right present in this place of the church, the age of Thyatira, 
the age of Sardis, the age of Philadelphia, the age, gang, of Laodicea. This is the picture of the church today, those four churches. And in two weeks we go to heaven. But before we get there, let me give you an encouragement. Final thing, and we will, we will actually finish tonight. I want to encourage you to invite people to the Revelation study. Oh, well, Rick, we're already three chapters into it. Yeah, but... I mean, if it hasn't been good yet, this is where it absolutely takes off. All right? From chapter 4 on, it is mind-boggling. It is fantastic, and it is all to come. It's the future. And I want to encourage you, and listen to me on this, to use our fascination with the future to invite people to be here. Because as we go through this, there will be opportunity. I will give opportunity for people to accept the Lord if they need to. But to accept the Lord, they've got to hear the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So I want to encourage you to invite people. Hey, we're, we're having a study at, this, at the barn. And man, it, it's all about the future. It's what the Bible says about the end times that we're living in. And people go, really? Really? Serious? Like, future stuff? I mean, it's tantalizing. Use it! Let it be a tool! Freak them out! Yeah, and I'll tell you what. Stuff you want to know. If you don't, I have no responsibility. You know, I mean, go ahead. Tweak them a little bit. <laughs> Make them a little uncomfortable. Use it as a tool of evangelism. In closing, in closing, I want to give you eight personal heart questions. I'm just going to read them through real fast. And if you don't get them written down, if you're taking notes, you can come up and get them in a minute. Eight personal heart questions. Gang, God wants us in this book. But He doesn't just want us in this book. He wants people hearing about what's coming who haven't accepted Him yet so that they have the chance to do so. So invite your friends. Here are the questions. Question number one. It's a question to the church at Ephesus. Where is your first love? Ask yourself personally, where is my first love? My first love. Have I forgotten, like Ephesus, my first love? Where's my first love? My love in Jesus. Question number two. A question for the church at Smyrna, but for us personally. Am I willing to suffer for him? Am I willing to do that? And I'm seriously asking you to ask yourself that question. Am I really willing, in my life, at this present point, to suffer if God has called me to that? To be persecuted for him? That's a question for the church at Smyrna, a question for us tonight. Number three, Pergamum. Pergamum, you may recall, the church of the objectionable marriage. So the question is, to what or to whom is my faith married? To what or to whom is my faith married? Is your faith married to your church? Those of you who fellowship at the bridge, if the bridge blew, blew apart tomorrow, some horrible thing came out about Rick's past, and all of a sudden, he's gone, he's fired, everybody just doesn't know what to do, would your faith stand? Or is your faith married to this church? I hope your faith isn't married to this church. I hope, I hope against hope that your faith is not married to your pastor. <laughs> That's a big mistake. If you're not sure about that, call Cheryl. She'll illuminate you a little bit on this. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, you're probably thinking, okay, so what's the real story here? What is in your past, Rick? Don't worry about it. It's past. <laughs> is your faith, to whom or to what, is your faith married? Is it to a church? Is it to a person? Is it to a people? Or is it to the Lord Jesus Christ? Question number four. Thyatira, is my religion more important than my relationship to the Lord? Is what I think I believe, my traditions, my long-held denominational possibly beliefs, are they more important than my relationship with the Lord? 
piggybacking off of this, number five, Sardis, are my traditions choking out my life? Are my long-held church traditions killing me? Am I somewhat spiritually dead because I have to do it the way I've always done it? And that way does not allow me to step into the more lively atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. Number six, Philadelphia. Who do I know to whom I should go? Who do I know to whom I should go? I would encourage every one of you tonight, when you get home or even before then, think about who you could get here. Who do I know to whom I should go? Who should I tell about Jesus? Who needs to hear the word? Who needs to have that connection, that involvement? And please hear me on this. I'm not interested in blowing out the barn in a big, huge church. I'm concerned about souls and every one of us have in our lives numerous people who do not know Jesus right now. Who can you tell about Jesus? And if they won't come here, where can you send them where they can find out about Jesus? And question number seven, question for the church of Laodicea, will I open the door when Jesus knocks? Will I open the door when Jesus knocks? Final question, the question that Jesus would ask Verse 22 of Revelation chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do I have an ear? Well, that's a dumb question. Rick, I have two ears. Great. Then you should hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for loving us in spite of ourselves. I think, Father, of these seven letters, possibly, Lord, the most stunning statement... It's when you finish laying out all the problems of Laodicea and you say that you love whom you discipline. Wow. It's not a church that deserves your love. Certainly not an age or generation of people that has earned this glowing right to be even connected to you. And yet, Father, you discipline those whom you love. I ask you tonight, Father, that if there is anyone among us who needs discipline, no matter how harsh it may be, that you would pour out your love into their life. That, Father, you will look into my life, and if you find sin or wickedness in me in any way, that you will pour out your discipline, that I might feel your love. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. We are so thankful that we have this book to study through, and that we can hear directly from you, Jesus, as you speak these words to us. And so I pray that these words would bring comfort, but would also bring challenge, that we would grow in Christ and be more like Him. And Lord, we look forward to that day when You come again and we do say Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.